Hi, Matt here. Seasoned leaders know that today's ever-changing landscape demands constant evolution. Stanford Executive Education offers you just that, a chance to refine your approach and stay ahead of the curve. Join us this summer at the Stanford Graduate School of Business for one of our on-campus C-suite programs to enrich your perspective, amplify your effectiveness, and shape the future with conviction. Go to grow.stanford.edu slash C-suite and apply today. Hi, Matt Abrahams here. For a change of pace, we'd like to turn the tables and listen to you. What communication questions and conundrums are you grappling with? Record a 10 to 15 second question via a voice memo app and send it to us at stanfordbusiness at stanford.edu. Be sure to write Think Fast, Talk Smart in the subject line. Also, in the body of the message, include your name and where you're sending your question from. We'll be accepting questions until June 30th. Again, send your audio recorded communication questions to Stanford Business, that's all one word, at stanford.edu by June 30th. We'll pick some questions and answer them on an upcoming episode. Thanks again for listening. Hello, I'm Matt Abrahams, and I teach strategic communication at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Welcome to Think Fast, Talk Smart, the podcast. You know, when I teach at the business school, my students listen, they take notes, they ask questions very politely. But when I come home, I don't get the same kind of treatment. My kids don't listen. Politeness sometimes goes out the door. My status and power feel very different at work and at home. Power permeates all facets of our personal and professional lives. Today, I am so excited to be joined by Deb Grunfeld, who is the Joseph McDonald Professor of Organizational Behavior at the GSB. Deb's research examines how people are transformed by the organizations and social structures in which they work. She teaches the incredibly popular class, Acting with Power, and just released a book with the same name, Acting with Power, why we are more powerful than we believe. Since we're all at home these days, Deb and I were able to catch up virtually. Deb, thanks so much for being here and congratulations on your new book. I'm reading it now and I'm really enjoying it. Oh, that's great. Thanks for saying that. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy to be on the other side of the launch. So (laughs) I can only imagine. All right. Hey, let's get started. I'd like to start with a definitional question. How do you define power and how does it play out in our relationships at work and at home? So power is one of those topics. People think about it in a lot of different ways. And we make the mistake often of thinking that power is like a personal quality. But power is actually a resource that comes out of our relationships and how we manage our relationships. And it has to do with the extent to which relationship partners need one another. So whenever people need one another, they both have power in a relationship. The person who needs the other less relative to vice versa has more power in the relationship. So it really has to do with how much value we add in our relationships and how many alternatives our relationship partners have to to working with us. So you can see Power coming from many different types of sources at work, um, you know, comes from formal reporting relationships. There's positional power. When when we're the boss, we have the, the authority or the right to tell people what to do and people need us for, 
you know, raises and bonuses, evaluations, whatever it is. But we see the same types of dynamics even in situations where there are no formal reporting relationships. So, um, you know, in peers, for example, there are power differences. One person will often need the other friend more at a particular time for a particular reason. And so they'll find themselves in a relatively powerless position where maybe they have to work a little bit harder on the relationship than their partner does. The same thing is true in marriages. I'm sorry to say, but usually that question comes up. So right. we love the idea of equality in marriage, but actually I think what we really find is that that the way couples manage power differences is that they get to have power in different realms. So you get to be the decider in certain realms and your spouse gets to be the decider in other realms. And that's as close as we get to equality, I think. But again, it just has to do with, you know, how how eager we are to please others and let them have their way based on how much we need them. I didn't know our conversation, Deb, was going to be more like therapy for me. You took me back to high school and being part of <laughs> a, a different groups, and then you took me into my relationship. Power, is, uh, power, power has a lot of dynamics that can influence people. I know you've worked with actors to help explore the dynamics and manifestations of power. Based on what you've learned, I'm curious what power looks like in terms of nonverbal behavior and presence. Sure. So I'll try to give you just a few words that maybe your listeners can remember when thinking yeah. about um, whether they're using their body in a way that projects power. The first one is whether you're on the square, whether you're facing someone directly with your weight evenly distributed on both legs, as opposed to turn to the side with your head tilted, maybe your weight on one hip, hip. Anything we do to take our body off the square so that we're not facing someone directly undermines how powerful we, we feel uh, to our relationship partners. So being square is one. We sometimes talk about stillness and working on stillness. A lot of us, when we're anxious, um, do a lot of things physically with our bodies that like lets the energy kind of leak out in all different types of directions. We fidget, we groom ourselves, we play with our hair. And um, one of the things you'll notice if you pay attention to, uh, to people who have a lot of authority is they tend to be very still and focused mm -hmm. in how they use their energy. And stillness of the head is actually a very important one. So you'll notice often when someone is very authoritative, they speak in a way while they're keeping their head perfectly still. And uh, I worked with some young company founders recently who told me that one of them had been coached to put on his headdress before going into meeting as a way of huh. practicing stillness and keeping his head perfectly still. If you imagine yourself wearing a heavy headdress or a crown, what you realize is it keeps your body straight up and down, but it also forces you to elongate your neck and keep your head relatively still. So stillness is a good one. Silence is another interesting one. Um, speaking to fill the science. Silence is a way of giving power away. So being comfortable holding silence often is a good way of shifting the balance of power in your own direction. We talk a lot about spreading out. So we know that the way animals project power is to be physically expansive. They keep their arms away from their body. They, they you know, man spread, keep their <laughs> knees apart. Um, what I like to focus on to be more, you know, practical, professional, and gender neutral is thinking about things like basically just keeping your chest open is very right. important. So 
Um, you know, it just conveys a kind of a generosity and a lack of fear. Mm-hmm. If you can keep your shoulders uh, back and your chest open. When I teach some of this, and it sounds like it dovetails a lot of what you're saying, it's it's all about being big, balanced, still, and slow. Is what yes. it sounds like. Those- Absolutely. Yeah. One other thing I'll mention, you know, and this gets a little bit uh, more into the realm of things that some people feel uncomfortable with, Mm -hmm. is recognizing how we use space and what that conveys about power. So one of the things, if you watch high and low power people interact, you'll notice is that higher ranking people um, kind of have the right to move into others social bubbles in a way that is not reciprocal. So whenever we, you know, stand closer to someone, move in on them, um, physically touch them on the shoulder or touch their things even, um, it's a very, a kind of an aggressive way of behaving. Um, And when we back away from people and give them a lot of space, it kind of conveys the opposite, um, the opposite, you know, feeling and sense of power. It's also interesting to just pay attention to an experiment with allowing your arms to leave your body. So we do a lot of work on this in my class, but, you know, pointing at someone, for example, we saw a lot of this in the news in the last year or so with Nancy Pelosi, you know, pointing at someone is a very aggressive, very aggressive and very intimidating thing to do. Anytime we use our arms to move in on someone else's space, there's something a little bit threatening or intimidating about it. It suggests that we're not ready to back off. So it's interesting to experiment with trying to move into other people's space. I think experimenting with all of these things is is really critical to helping people see what can happen for them in terms of their power. And a lot of people just act out of habit and don't actually try on some of these new things. And I know in the the work you do in the classes you teach, you have people, your students actually trying this. And I think that's a great way to learn. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. And, um, you know, it's a little bit, you know, people say, oh, it it feels unnatural. It feels inauthentic until you do it. And then you realize, oh, you know what? There was a part of me that could do that actually authentically. You know, once you, once you get yourself into the right headspace and yeah, the right reason for doing it. Um, you know, this is how we grow. Right. It's all about giving yourself permission to try that. Thank you. Do you have some insights on language and power? For example, I notice a lot of what I call hedging language, things like kind of, sort of, and I think, and to my mind, this just reduces people's mojo and any thoughts on, on the actual words we use and how it relates to power. Absolutely. So one of the things that, you know, I've learned from working with actors is that a way of an authoritative way of speaking is to speak in complete sentences. They're often not long sentences, but they're sentences that have a clear beginning and a clear end point. And it's part of um, expressing yourself in a decisive authoritative way that doesn't leave things open for discussion. The hedging that you're talking about are, are all verbal kind of ticks or ways of showing people that we're not sure we're right and that we're open to being questioned or being challenged. And it does undercut your mojo. On the other hand, I think there are situations where it can be disarming in a positive way to express yourself with less certainty and less confidence and some you know, sort of 
humility or sense that you may not have all the answers. I think what the key um, point that you just raised there is the purposefulness of them. I think many people do them out of habit and they're not using them right. strategically, but I think it's fascinating that, that they do provide a strategic opportunity that's in right. communication. Uh, again, right. a lot of what we do in the classes I teach is talk about transitioning habits into choices. And this to me sounds like a clear choice people could make to help them uh, rather than just invoking it out of habit. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. So as we come to an end, I, I ask all of the guests on this podcast the same three questions. And I hope you're game to, to give me your answers for, for these. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So if you were to capture the best communication advice you've ever received as a five to seven word presentation slide title, what would it be? All right. Let's see if I can remember how I got this down to five to seven words. Um, the most important person in the scene is never you. Oh, I like that. Oh, give give a little bit more. <laughs> Just to tell it's you what provocative. It yes. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. So it's uh it's something I heard a director say um, when she was working with two students who were practicing a conversation, reading a script, and were both feeling very self-conscious and looking to her for direction about how they were supposed to say something and whether it sounded okay. And she said to one of them, or she said to both of them first, she said, who's the most important person in the scene? And they both were looking at each other and trying to figure it out. Well, she starts talking first, but he actually has all the power. And then she looked at them and she, she looked at the guy and she said, the most important person in the scene is her. Move off yourself. Mm. The most important person in the scene is her. And then she looked at the woman and said, who's the most important person in the scene? And the woman said, me? And she said, no, the most important person in the scene is him. Right. Move off yourself. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a, it, to me, it is the most useful thing you can do to be effective as a communicator is to learn to train your attention on the other person. Right. And to do everything you can to make the other person look good and feel smart and get something out of the, in, of the interaction. Um, and what's the bonus of that yeah. is that when you don't have any mental resources to think about yourself. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. There's no right. shame. None of that stuff. It's just, you don't even see the audience. Right. In, in all the strategic communication work that we do, we talk a lot about being in service of your audience. It's about their yes. needs, not about what you need. And, that, and yes. that's echoed nicely. Yes. So let me move on and ask you question number two. Who is a communicator that you admire and why? So my favorite communicator right now is Andrew Cuomo. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is because, you know, one of the things that I think is most important for leaders to understand in terms of owning their power and authority is to recognize that as a leader and the person in a position of power, your most important duty is to play your part in someone else's story. Mm -hmm. And I've heard him say, I just heard him say this, uh, Trevor Noah asked him the other day, you know, why aren't you responding to the president in a way that, you know, conveys your irritation? Why aren't you engaging in the fights, you know, with him when he's critical of you? Why don't you respond? He said, um, my feelings have nothing to do with, with how I show up and they should have nothing to do with how I show up. I have a job to do. And my job is to run the state of New York 
and to, you know, I don't remember the words that he used, but the words I would use is to say his job is to be a base of security for other people. And what I, and he, he just, he embodies so many of those things. Like if you watch his body language, if you look at the way he speaks, he doesn't, we don't actually need to know what he's saying. And he doesn't even know that much. A lot of times he doesn't have the answers, but the way he shows up every day on time in his uniform with the seal, with the flags behind him, with the experts around him and just speaks in this calm, controlled, reassuring way. He's letting us know he's got this. And in a time when there's a crisis and when there's chaos, this is what we need from our leaders. And uh, I just admire the way he's doing it. To me, it's a perfect example of, you know, of course he's terrified like the rest of us. He's had sick family members. He's, you know, he's dealing with a nightmare in New York. Um, and it's interesting because you re- I realize when I watch him, he, he doesn't have the answers. He doesn't know what the right thing to do is. He has no more certainty than the rest of us about what's coming. But the way he communicates makes us feel like we can relax and go about doing what we need to do because he's behaving like the person in charge. So to me, it's a perfect example of what it looks like to own your power and authority. And I am enjoying watching him and I'm enjoying knowing that people from all over the world are watching him, not because they need to know what he's saying, but because they need to see him doing what he's doing. And he understands the theater of it. And uh, I think it's a great example of why the whole idea of acting and playing a role is important for using power well. I like that phrase you use, the theater of it. So much of our communication is that theater. And many of us fixate on just one or two elements instead of the broader scene that's being played out. So thank you for that. Our final question, what are the first three ingredients that go into a successful communication recipe? Social role is the first one, Mm -hmm. knowing what part you're playing. Mm -hmm. Visual focus is the second one, being able to focus visually on other people and the things that you're doing so that you're not watching yourself. And the third one is generous heart. Wow, that was a great way to summarize uh, the lessons that you've taught all of us uh, about power and how to embrace our power. Deb, thank you so much. I really appreciate your insights and guidance today. My pleasure, Matt. I'm so delighted you're interested, and it's been great to talk with you about these things. Thank you. We can all benefit from thinking about and leveraging the power we have and the power we bring to our interactions with others. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Think Fast, Talk Smart, the podcast. Produced by Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. For more information and episodes, visit gsb.stanford.edu or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, find us on social media at stanford.gsb. Hi, Jenny here. I'm the executive producer of the show. I know Think Fast, Talk Smart listeners love to learn and hone their communication and leadership skills. Here's a fantastic opportunity for you. Stanford Graduate School of Business offers more than 50 executive education programs, in-person and online, designed for leaders of all experience levels and career interests. Unlock your leadership potential and go to grow.stanford.edu executed to find the program for you.